Welcome to the Pathway Podcast. On this episode, Lead Pastor Jeremy Flanagan continues our Power of Mentorship series. Stay tuned after the sermon for this week's Next Steps. We've really been, uh, at least I have, enjoying this series. Had a lot of questions come out of it from you uh, about uh, mentorship and this idea that we've been talking about in the month of January. And so we're kind of this week and next week we're going to wrap up. Next week we're really going to spend some time looking at how uh, the idea of biblical mentorship or uh, if you want to look at it, discipleship, other things is kind of hard-coded into what we do here at Pathway. Um, And uh, and we've been talking about the idea in general. We've been talking about being a mentor, about peer-to-peer mentor relationships. Uh, And this week trying to look at it more from the uh, outlook of someone who is seeking uh, to learn, seeking to gain experience, seeking to find answers to those questions uh, that maybe you didn't even know you have. You're just seeking and hoping that someone ahead of you uh, with more experience and, and uh, has, has spent more time uh, dealing with different things can help you maybe shortcut the learning process. Instead of learning from your own mistakes, learn from theirs. Instead of having to figure out things on your own, learn what worked for somebody else. And really, that's the whole idea about biblical mentorship that we see in Scripture uh, and everywhere else, is trying to be in a relationship where everybody benefits, where you have shared goals. And that whole idea of mentorship in the business world and everywhere else, they they have taken what I see as a biblical concept, and they have really focused on it more than we do within churches, because it takes dedication, it takes time, it takes sacrifice— to say that I'm going to spend time doing this with someone else. Uh, But businesses, we talked about early on, have figured out how successful it can be, how successful it is. Uh, Some of the stats and everything, there's a document linked on our sermon blog today that I'll I'll reference later, but I put the link to the stats on there that you can kind of see from a a general, you know, secular perspective how effective mentorship is. But biblically, we fall down on that a lot. Um, But the whole idea is whether or not you're the mentor trying to pour into someone else because you believe in something enough, hopefully, you know, what we do as a church family, uh, you believe in something enough that you want to pass that down to someone else, or whether it's peer-to-peer where you're you're friends but you're intentional on building, uh, you know, each other up and learning from each other, and whether you have shared goals about where you want to go, Or whether you're a person saying, uh, you know, I know, Jeremy, two weeks ago you said all of us have something to to teach. All of us have something to give. All of us have something to share. And that is true. If you don't believe that, go back two weeks ago, listen to that sermon. And I said, before you just say, I only want to find someone to help me be ready to help others at the same time. But if you are the mentee and you're looking, how do I learn? How do I grow? How do I move forward? Uh, It's all about being successful with someone else that has the same shared goals as you. Because if you're paired with a mentee or you're paired with a mentor, or you're paired, you know, in a peer-to-peer mentorship relationship, you know, friendships, but that are intentional on growth, and whether you call that also discipleship or accountability, all those things work together. Um, you have to be wanting the same thing. You know, I, I loved coaching uh, youth basketball. I did it, um, you know, when Luke was a baby. I did it when I, you know, before I was married and did it when Luke was a toddler, was coaching fifth grade girls over at the Boys and Girls Club for a year or two. 
Uh, and then when Luke grew up, I would coach, uh, you know, his teams and everything else. Loved doing it, but one of the things that it was always the hardest thing to try and teach was to get players to realize that if they want to get better in, in like one-on-one drills, trying to teach them how to dribble and how to get past people or how to, you know, turn or do different, you know, ball handling skills, if they wanted to get better, the best way that they could learn to get better was to teach the person they were going against how to beat them, right? Because you always have, like, when they're fourth grade or, you know, something like that, fifth grade, they just wanted to show up their friends, right? They wanted to go, and they wanted to blow by them, and they wanted to show how much better they were than their friends. That was the whole point of doing it to them. And I would try to get through to them that, you know, don't just try to beat them. Teach them how to stop you to force you to learn how to do something else. And if you teach them how to stop you, you'll become better as a team altogether, but it forces you to also learn and grow. It didn't work that much, honestly, with fourth grade boys. I'll just have to admit it. Maybe as my coaching skills, probably. They just wanted to win. They didn't have shared goals. But the few that would learn to be able to try and build the other person up, to teach them how to, how to succeed, even against them, to force all of them to move together and to grow, that's when you saw players develop. And within our Christian life, too often we are simply content if we're doing okay, right? If we're getting by, if we're doing okay, if we're achieving our goals, and it doesn't matter near as much to us if we're bringing others along with us. We just want to make sure that us and ours, right, that us and ours are doing everything right. You know, and as a dad, as a husband, I mean, I get that. That's my primary responsibility. But the idea of us and ours has to, has to expand. It has to be broader than that. It can't just be my wife and my son. It can't just be that. It needs to be others around me that I want within, within you know, starting here within our church family. It can start even smaller than that within your small group. It can start even smaller than that just within a couple of friends that you commit to say, what do we need to do to grow together, to both develop and become more like Christ? Um, and so the last couple of weeks I've referenced the same passage and I'm going to reference it, move on, but we're going to be in that same place in that same storyline of Jesus with the 12 disciples. And we saw how when he sent out the 12 that uh, he sent them out, and you can go ahead and bring the slide up that kind of shows a timeline of different things that are happening between him sending the 12 and today in uh, Mark chapter 8 and 9. But um, what we see here is that when he sent the 12 disciples out, they had followed Jesus for a while. They had seen how Jesus ministered and went to towns, but they all had their own personalities. They all had their own ways of doing it. And so when Jesus sent them out, he didn't tell them how to reach others when they went to cities. He just said, go. You've experienced it, you've heard, you've seen, so now go and reach people. And the only instructions he gave are what not to take, right? He didn't want them to take extra clothes. He, he didn't want them to take a whole lot of provisions. He wanted them to be forced to rely on Jesus, right, or rely on God, rely on their faith. And then the other instruction he gave them was, if a town shuts you down, right, if they do not welcome you, if they do not listen, that's all right. Shake the dust off your sandals, move on. So the only instructions that Jesus gave them were how to increase your faith and don't be discouraged when people don't listen. You just go and do what you're supposed to do. So they did that, and they came back, and then when they came back, we talked about Jesus feeding the 5,000 and, uh, and increasing their faith even more. 
then uh, they, you know, they and Jesus met together and they talked and they shared everything. After that, you see stories about Jesus healing the deaf and healing those who couldn't speak, the mute. Jesus then later walked on water to their boat. And uh, if you know that story about Peter stepping out and for a second he was able to and then he started sinking. Um, then after that, you have Jesus feeding 4,000. Uh, and that time he had seven loaves and uh, some fish. And then finally it brings us to where I want to start in Mark chapter 8 where Peter proclaimed that Jesus was the Messiah. In Mark chapter 8 and verse 27, it says that Jesus and his disciples left Galilee, went up to the villages near Caesarea Philippi, and as they were walking along, he asked them, Who do people say I am? Well, they replied, Some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, and others say you are one of the other prophets. Then he asked them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter replied, You are the Messiah. And so, this is important in the whole scheme of what we're talking about today because the whole idea of biblical mentorship goes back to what we shared last week. And I have a slide that, that, um, that we brought up, and you can go ahead and pull it up. The entire idea is that to have biblical mentorship, whether it's you know mentor to mentee, mentee up, asking questions, peer to peer, whatever it is, that our target isn't just the shared goals that we set based on what we want or what we like. That's regular mentorship in the workplace, right? We find a career path or a career goal that we want, and we go after it. We find a hobby or a sport or something we want to participate in, and, and we set the goals to become better at it, right? And we move towards those. Mentorship works in any of these. Week one, we talked about what? Organized crime and mafia. Mentorship worked. They actually have a very great, uh, great tree model that you can see. Um, mentorship works whether you're using it for good or for bad purposes, right? It does. The, the principles work. And what makes biblical mentorship special is that we don't choose our target. We don't choose what are the, who, exactly what do I want to be like? No, biblical mentorship is that we accept Jesus as the target. That whatever our goals are have to fit within making us more like Jesus. It's not just that we want to be like Jesus, but we have this other set of goals and they don't conflict with becoming like Jesus. That's not biblical mentorship. That's just mentorship. That's you choosing what you want. And that's not necessarily bad, but the, the idea of biblical mentorship is that whatever our goals are, those goals are nested within making us more like Christ. And so for Peter and for the other disciples, it was so important at that point in time. They had seen so much. They had witnessed so many of Jesus' miracles. They had heard so much of his teaching that he asked them, who do you say I am? And so I've said that in this series, there's not a whole lot of gospel shared, but I want to this morning take a moment to say that mentorship is great. Finding someone who's an example of the type of person you want to be and trying to let them pour into you following their example, that's a biblical concept, right? All of those are good things, but nothing will make you who you want to be and truly happy and at peace unless you know who Jesus is. And so you can, you can succeed in life and you can become more like the type of person you would like to be, but you can't find true happiness and joy and peace outside of trusting Jesus as Savior. So if you're here and you are searching, and maybe the idea of having other people pour into you sounds great. It is great. It is absolutely wonderful, but it does not replace starting from the same point as another individual 
where you all believe that Jesus Christ is Savior. And so at the end of today, as we talk about it, so many other things, if you are here and you're struggling with that question, that's the one thing I would love to talk to you about afterwards today. If you have a question about that, I'd love to talk to you afterwards or this afternoon or whenever. Find a time that we can get together. But make sure that that is your starting point. And at this place in time, right, in Mark chapter 8, that's where Peter and the other disciples were. They knew and accepted who Jesus was. Others didn't. Others didn't know. They didn't recognize. They didn't accept yet. The disciples, they knew. They, they said, you are the Messiah. And even among them, one still, wasn't, uh, one still wasn't truly following. And so here we go with the idea of mentorship, the idea of having a shared goal to become like Christ. And whatever things that we do, whatever goals that we set are, are great, but they need to flow into making us more like Jesus. The story I want to be in today is Mark chapter 9. So all these things had happened. The 12 had been sent out. They came back, fed the 5,000, had 12 baskets of leftover food, which each, all 12 of those uh, apostles had a basket of food, a proof of what Jesus could do. Jesus held the deaf and the mute. He walked on water. He fed another 4,000. Peter says, yes, you are the Messiah. The next story you have is about the transfiguration of Christ. And here Jesus takes Peter, James, and John, and they go up into a mountain alone. Uh, and while they're there by themselves, it says that Jesus and his appearance, it, it changed. Um, that uh, his, his clothing shone like it was, it was light. And just that it was, uh, you know, just as bright as, as light itself. And his face shined. And, um, and so when Peter, James, and John saw Jesus like that, Elijah and Moses all came and appeared. And the three of them, Elijah, Moses, and Jesus, talked together. And so here you have this miraculous thing where this handful get to see uh, Jesus in, in a heavenly state. And then as they come down from the mountain, that's where we join in Mark chapter 9 and verse 14. It says, When they returned to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd surrounding them. Some teachers of religious law were arguing with them. And when the crowd saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with awe, and they ran to greet him. What is all this arguing about, Jesus asked. One of the men of the crowd spoke up and said, Teacher, I brought my son so you could heal him. He is possessed by an evil spirit that won't let him talk. And whenever this spirit seizes him, it throws him violently on the ground. Then he foams at the mouth and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast out the evil spirit, but they couldn't do it. Jesus said to them, You faithless people, how long must I be with you? How long must I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they brought the boy, but when the evil spirit saw Jesus, it threw the child into a violent convulsion, and he fell to the ground, writhing and foaming at the mouth. How long has this been happening? Jesus asked the boy's father. He replied, Since he was a little boy. And the spirit often throws him into the fire or into the water, trying to kill him. Have mercy on us and help us if you can. In verse 23, Jesus responded, What do you mean, if I can? Jesus asked. Anything is possible if a person believes. The father instantly cried out, I do believe, but help me overcome my unbelief. When Jesus saw that the crowd of onlookers was growing, he rebuked the evil spirit. Listen, you spirit that makes this boy unable to hear and speak, he said. I command you to come out of this child and never enter him again. Then the spirit screamed and threw the boy into another violent convulsion and left him. The boy appeared to be dead. A murmur ran through the crowd as people said, He's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand, helped him to his feet, and he stood up. 
Now I'm going to go back and I want to hit a few points in that story, but I wanted to read it all to you at once. So all these miraculous things that happen and the disciples watch them happen. Then you have Jesus take three of them up to the Mount of Transfiguration. That's what we call it. Wouldn't call that before, but uh, took him up to this mountain, saw Jesus transfigured into a kind of a heavenly state, talking with Elijah and Moses. And when they come back down, they come back down to arguments. Right? They come back down. It says um, there was a large crowd surrounding them, some teachers of religious law, you know, scribes or Pharisees, whoever were arguing with them. And, um, and then they ran to see Jesus. Jesus stepped in and asked what everything was about, and that's when he got an answer. Back in verse 17. One of the men in the crowd spoke up and said, Teacher, I brought my son so you could heal him. He is possessed by an evil spirit that won't let him talk. And whenever the spirit seizes him, it throws him violently on the ground. Um, And he finishes saying, I asked your disciples to cast out the devil, but they couldn't do it. So this father gives back to Jesus, and he tells him what's going on. And he says, I came to have my problems solved, and your disciples, the one that you're teaching, right, the one that they've been going out and preaching and healing others and everything else, they couldn't do it. They couldn't take care of this problem for me. Now, Jesus, when he responded in uh, the next verse, he said, you faithless people, how long must I be with you? How long must I put up with you? Then bring the boy to me. You know, other translations, it's a perverse or corrupt generation. Um, Different ways of putting it, but it's all the same thing. Faithless, um, perverse, uh, corrupt. The the idea that they were either fickle or they, you know, wouldn't trust, they wouldn't turn, um, or that they were just there to get what they wanted. And so, in this moment in time, there's a lot of discussion about who Jesus was saying this to. I mean, first of all, his, his disciples were the ones not able to heal this boy. And here in a second, we'll see where Jesus talks to them about having greater faith. But it's hard to think in my mind that he's necessarily talking to his disciples, calling them a perverse and corrupt generation. It's also hard, I mean, it sounds a little harsh to say to a dad of a boy that he's bringing to be healed. But then again, it is a dad who says, if right? And Jesus calls him on it. You're saying, if I can do this? Um, I also like to think when you look at these things, uh, Jesus in Deuteronomy 32, 20 once said, you know, I will abandon them and see what becomes of them for they are a twisted generation, children without integrity. Numbers 14, 27, he says something similar when he says, how long must I put up with this wicked community and its complaints about me? And he says, yes, I've heard the Israelites complaints about me. Like, yeah, I, I know what you're saying. And so God had this same type of reaction to his own people, to the children of Israel, whenever they kept turning from him to other idols or they kept complaining about God's provision for them. And so to me, it really feels like Jesus was speaking to this culture and society as a whole. Maybe specifically, if you want to get to a group of people, those religious leaders back in verse 14, the the scribes and Pharisees and those who are arguing with the disciples, I get the mind said and the, the thought in my head when I see Jesus coming down and when you have, you know, nine of the disciples who were still down there ministering, three of them were with him, and these nine were, you know, preaching or healing or doing other things, but for whatever reason, they can't heal this boy. And then places in, in Scripture, you see other places where these religious leaders then would taunt them 
and would make fun of them and would say, you know, why can't you do this or why, you know, do this to prove you're, you know, you're really who you say you are. So I can just see some of the people griping and complaining, hey, I thought you said you could, you could fix this. And the others who were against them already taunting them and making fun of them, trying to stoke up the crowd, right? Because they wanted them to turn on Jesus and his disciples. And Christ comes down and says, you perverse and wicked generation, you faithless group of people, how long am I going to have to keep putting up with this? Now, when he, he confronts them and he talks to them, and the father down in verse 22 tell, starts telling him what's going on and says, have mercy on us and help us if you can. That's when Jesus started really getting into the meat of the problem here and said, what do you mean if I can? Anything is possible if a person believes, which is then when the father says, I believe, but help me overcome my unbelief. We could spend a whole lot of time there, and that's a, a different sermon, a different topic. But the idea of somebody saying that I do believe, but help me overcome my unbelief, gets into the, the heart of the matter where truly trusting God for everything, not just believing he's a savior, not just trusting him and having your ticket punched to go to heaven, but truly trusting him with a plan and a path for your life when there's good times, when there's bad times, trusting God to do the unthinkable or the unimaginable, the miraculous, trusting God to truly care for us enough to actually be listening when we pray. All of those things, some seem small, some seem large, but at, at, at different points in life, all of them may seem unattainable. This father had doubts, and, and that's normal. And that's something that we can look at another day. But the question is, why couldn't the disciples overcome them? In that moment in time, why could the disciples not heal this boy? Why couldn't they do it? Well, you have, and let's just read a little further in Mark 9 and verse 28. It says, Afterward, when Jesus was alone in the house of his disciples, they asked him, Why, could we, or why couldn't we cast out that evil spirit? Jesus replied, this kind, uh, this kind can be cast out only by prayer. And other manuscripts also say, can only be cast out by prayer and fasting. And so you have that idea that, yeah, you have faith, but you need to grow within it. In, in Matthew 17, another place where this story is shared, in verse 19, it says, Afterward, the disciples asked Jesus privately, why couldn't we cast out that demon? And Jesus in verse 20 said, you don't have enough faith. I tell you the truth, if you had faith even as small as a mustard seed, you could say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it would move. Nothing would be impossible. So for his disciples who he had taught, who he had trusted enough to send out on their own, who had been preaching and healing and everything else, been doing all these great things, in this moment in time, they failed. They, they hit a wall that they couldn't get past and they couldn't figure it out. They were doing everything they knew to do, and they kept hitting that same place. They could not heal the boy. And I can just think of it, you know. You can think of that moment in time. Why? Why didn't they have enough faith? Well, I mean, the nine who were down there, right, dealing with this crowd that became unruly, they didn't get to go up on the mountain. I don't know. Maybe they felt slighted. Maybe they felt a little jealous or left out. And so they already weren't in a good place mentally or spiritually, emotionally, at that moment in time, because they're like, why do Peter, James, and John get to go and we have to stay down here? Maybe it was because as soon as it started snowballing on them, right, 
they're not able to heal this one boy, and the taunts start. Probably the taunts from the scribes and the Pharisees began before they failed. And then once they stumble just a little bit, they get louder and louder, and then more people start piling on. And it becomes really difficult to push through and do what God wants them to do. It becomes difficult for any of us, right? To do what, to do what we want to do in life whatsoever. Whenever people start, you know, railing against us, especially if it starts growing and building and building, and the snowball happens and we can't get out of the way of it, and we don't know how to stop it or to push through. Whatever the reasons were, and maybe it's the, the personal and individual faith of the Father and the fact that he didn't truly believe maybe that this was the Messiah. He thought it was, but maybe he didn't believe, or maybe he believed that it was the Messiah, but he didn't realize that that means he's God and he truly can do anything. We're not exactly sure why. There's a lot of reasons that it could be, right? A lot of reasons that it could be. But there's one thing that Jesus said could overcome all of them, and that was that they needed greater faith And apparently that greater faith would come to them with prayer and fasting. With time and dedication put into it. To building up the faith, to communing with God, to giving up things in order to focus on God. And as they did that, there would be a place in time when their faith could move mountains. But they needed to grow. They themselves needed something from God just like the people under them. Right? So the disciples, you could say, were trying to pour down and invest in the people underneath them because they believed so much in in, in their goals that they wanted to bring people up, but they themselves still needed it. Every single one of us, at whatever place in life that we are, even in positions of leadership, even in places where most everyone feels that we are the ones passing down knowledge and we are the ones who have the most experience to share, even at those places and times, we need growth. And we see it come to them in a way because they asked. Because once they got in private with Jesus, they asked. Now, Jesus had taught them, right? Jesus had, they had followed and they had seen by example. They had learned. They had experienced so many things. Their faith had grown by leaps and bounds by participating in what Jesus had done. And then they had gone out and they had put it to practice with some successes, some failures, but they had put it into practice and they were seeing what Jesus had done to pour into them, multiplying to grow in their lives. And still yet, there were times that they needed to say, why are we failing? How can we be better? What is keeping us from moving forward? The, the process of being somebody who is willing to ask, who is willing to seek, who is willing to do that, should never stop. And Jesus, as he told them these things and told them about how their faith needed to grow, in that moment in time, the people were cheering them. In that moment in time, everyone was excited. We actually see in Luke chapter 9, it says in verse 43, all gripped the people as they saw this majestic display of God's power. While everyone was marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, one of the other accounts said that this was as they started leaving to go to another town. But everybody was singing their praises, right? All this amazing stuff was happening. And here's what he told them in verse 44. Listen to me and remember what I say. The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of his enemies. But they didn't know what he meant. Its significance was hidden from them, so they couldn't understand it. 
and they were afraid to ask him about it. You know, I always look back at some of these passages and the wordings of it, and I try and figure out, is it that God didn't allow them to understand, or it's just that it was hid from them. They, they, they couldn't, you know, know what this meant at this time. They just couldn't see it themselves. But even when everybody else was building them up, right, because I guarantee you that after going out and doing your own mission trips and having 5,000 people fed and you holding baskets and, and being with Jesus while he is, but you also are probably healing the blind and healing the mute and, and doing everything else and watching Jesus walk on water. I mean, at that point, that's the run through the... That's the run through the brick wall moment, right? That's when you're so excited and you're so confident that you can do anything. And then, boom, here it is. You get deflated, you fail. And Jesus says, we just need more faith. And it comes through prayer and fasting. And and we can do that. But everybody is pumping you back up again. And Jesus came and he fixed everything. You're like, okay, we get this. And Jesus still teaches them on the backside, kind of what we saw in Proverbs. You know, don't build yourself up. Right? Um, and be careful when other people are. And he says, these same people today, more or less, is kind of the gist I get here. The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of his enemies. They're saying great things right now, but it's going to get tough. All along the way, Jesus took moments to teach. When they were going into situations on their own, he told them, don't be discouraged if you meet failure, just move on. When they hit a brick wall today... He said, you can have faith that will move mountains. Here's what it's going to take to get it. And then he said, but still, just don't get too excited about your successes because there's hard things ahead. Jesus was always teaching. He was letting them experience. He was pouring into them. And here, though, they were too afraid to ask him what all this meant. They couldn't understand it. They didn't ask. And, you know, Jesus told them so many times that he was going to be Um, you know, that he was going to, all the things in the Old Testament, Isaiah 53, everything else, that he was going to be sacrificed up, that he was going to go through all of that. And he talked to them about that many, many, many times. But the true significance of it, I, I still don't, it still missed them. Because at the end, when it actually happened, when Jesus was crucified on the cross, they, they were scared. They weren't seeing that as the culmination of everything Jesus said and since that came true, all the other great stuff is still going to come true. No, they, they were scared of it. And here, they didn't understand it, and they were too afraid to ask. And the learning stopped. And later down the road, we see the fear that met them. Whenever Jesus' prophecy, whenever Jesus is saying, I'm going to be betrayed in the hands of my enemies, happened. If you want to keep growing in life, you need to pair yourself with others that can ask you the tough questions, that you can ask hard questions of, that y'all can grow together in a peer-to-peer relationship. And that's what most of us are going to find because, let's just face it, there, there aren't enough people going around that are confident that they've got everything worked out, right, for us to find. Because I don't know anybody, even the ones that we think that have, that have most everything worked out, You ask them and they'll start talking to you about their failures and about the the places where they need help and work, right? So a lot of our moments are going to be peer-to-peer, but within those, there are going to be times that you are the less experienced one and somebody else has gone through something they can pour into you. And then there are those people that you can partner with that do have a lot more experience or have a lot more success in trying to follow God. And I say trying to follow God because they're failing too. 
but they've had some good days, more, more good days than I have, right? And those are the people I want to listen to. It's within those relationships and within those moments, and here the disciples, in a moment of failure, in a moment of weakness, in a moment in time when they are his leaders, they are his ambassadors on the earth, and yet their faith was not strong enough to do what they knew they could do. Their faith was not strong enough to do what everybody else expected them to be able to do. And in those times when we hit that place in life, when we fail at what we know we can do, and especially what others expect us to be able to do, it is easy to fall away and to go back into a place where the spotlight isn't on us anymore, where we can't fail anybody because we don't try anything where we can't make a mistake and, and be embarrassed in front of people because we never try to accomplish something. But instead, the disciples started off, and they did a great thing. They got away with Jesus, and they asked why. They asked why. Now, the problem is, is when we're afraid to ask, when we're too embarrassed, that's when stuff stops. That's when we start failing, and that's when we don't grow. I have uploaded today, and the links to this message will be put up later because obviously we're not done yet, uh, so they can't be put up beforehand. But we did post a document on our sermon blog. So on today's sermon blog, you can go down, download just one page, uh, have a handful of, of questions that, um, that, that staff has picked out and that we have pulled some of these things together, some really good questions to ask. Most of them are worded from the idea of from a mentor to a mentee, um, obviously just change the, the verbiage of it um, to be able to ask somebody, hey, this is what I need to ask you about, right? This is what I need from you. And some of those things are just, you know, the, the things that we think of. What are your goals for this year, this semester, this month? You know, how are you planning to accomplish them? And you got to break things down into small enough timelines to get started. Um, what areas need improvement, in, you know, in your life? Finances, health, spiritual what things need to be done every day to get where you want to be in 10 years? You know, what are the daily tasks that you can identify that are necessary? What pain or failure have you experienced? And what were some of the effects? How has that shaped who you are? You know, we all go through those things. And when we share ours, that person we're talking with will probably share theirs. And we may learn from each other. Or we, at the very least, may get to learn from them. What successes in your past give you confidence when facing difficulties today? I think it's important to look at both, the successes and the failures, and to learn how they have molded and shaped our view of what we're going to try tomorrow. And then that question, how can I or others support you in achieving your goals? You know, there are a lot more questions on there, I think about two to three times the number that I've listed, and then uh, about nine or ten different links that I put on there, just some general ones about mentoring from a Christian perspective, from a business perspective, and then a handful of pages that just give you more example questions, hundreds of questions if you want to find them. These are just a place to get started. But the whole idea that we see from Scripture, from Jesus and his disciples, from the story of Nicodemus coming to Christ, from the countless stories that you see in the Bible, people learned and grew when they actively went to others that they believed could answer their questions and then they had the bravery to ask. But it doesn't just take the bravery to ask. It, it comes in more than that. It comes 
in having the maturity to know where we need to grow the most, right? And maybe we're not mature enough to actually know that, and that's the first question, is asking somebody and saying, what are my faults? I think I'm pretty awesome, but other people think I need to grow. So help me find those things. It's having the humility to listen to the answers and not get defensive. You know, if you're going to someone that you trust to be honest with you, the worst thing you can do is start being defensive when they answer. Um, that's a surefire way to make the asking worthless. And it's just, honestly, you should, if you're not ready to do that, almost don't even get started because all you did was ruin that mentorship opportunity. So as to have the maturity to ask where are my fault areas or to actually see them and ask about them, is to have the humility to listen to them and to be able to take some of those things in. Can you imagine the disciples who have been healing people and casting out demons and making the lame walk? And Jesus says, yeah, y'all need more faith. Nobody's going to say anything to you that stings quite that hard. All right? It's just not going to happen. It takes humility to take that in. It takes belief and confidence in the shared goal of what you're trying to achieve. The disciples had a clear vision. They wanted to follow Jesus. He was literally there. And so if we have that shared vision that we're entering this intentional part of our relationship to become more like Jesus, we'll have the humility to do it. And so to have, to have that wisdom, to have that humility, and, and to have just the dedication to take advantage of the relationships within our church family to be able to accomplish this. It takes dedication. It takes you saying, I'm going to seek this out. It may be embarrassing, but after I get past that, it'll be uplifting. It may, it may hurt and the truth may cut like a sword, but after that, the, the Spirit of God heals. But there's only one way to grow, and that's to ask questions of each other when we have the shared goal of becoming more like Christ. Thank you for listening. We challenge you to take some next steps this week. One, whether you seek out a more experienced mentor or work to develop a friendship into a peer-to-peer mentorship, visit our sermon blog to download questions to use and other help to make these relationships intentional. Two, if you don't have a relationship like this already, start by looking in your small group. For more information about small groups, Pathway Kids, or anything Pathway-related, contact us at pathwaybaptist.com slash connect.